All right. We are now beginning a study, uh, which we're recording this first one for those who couldn't be here. Kind of a bad week to begin a new study. Uh, the lowest attended Sunday of the year, in, typically. This and then uh, the Sunday closest to Christmas. People are just all traveling. So I'm surprised to see as many people as I am. And if I could have pulled it off, I would have just preached something on its own, just like, uh, or taught something on its own, just like I'm going to be doing uh, from the pulpit. Uh, but we're recording it for those who, who can be here, and I'll say that next week. But we're beginning a study on Presbyterianism. This is the same study that I was doing on Wednesday night in early 2020 that uh, was canceled. Uh, so uh, lots of irony there. I was also in the middle of doing a sermon series on the church. And uh, <laughs> I was overwhelmed by the irony, but, but so it is. Um, but I never finished it. But I also had the thought that uh, it was so poorly attended. Uh, Wednesday nights is just not something that works well in this church. It's not actually a point I'm going to make at one point. Uh, uh, what what uh, the Reform Week ought to look like. Uh, and I'll basically make the case that Sundays are the busy day, but then the, the, the six days busy day at church, but the six days are, are busy with the labors of this life. Uh, so, so maybe Wednesday night isn't the best idea. I'm not sure. But I did lament that I was putting a lot into these <laughs> preparations, and I felt like it was a lot of useful information, and there was almost no one there to hear it. So I'm, I'm thankful, one, that I have a chance maybe to teach this to a few more people, uh, but two, actually to complete the study this time. So, And it was so long ago, I don't think it would make sense to pick up where I left off. I'm, I'm starting from where... Uh, I started last time, although obviously it'll look different. Uh, you know, one of the things that has happened over the last year and a half is that uh, new convictions have been formed, or maybe older convictions have been uh, crystallized in my thinking. So, and, and the very things that are being contended for in this book and in this study. Uh, so, it is it, it, in being a, pres- uh, a study on Presbyterianism. It is, uh, it is as much a study about the local church as a Presbyterian church as it is a broad overview of Presbyterianism. Because the focus of the study is, what does Presbyterianism actually look like? And that's the, the big question. It, it is not a question that is easily answered. I don't even think by Presbyterians. <laughs> What is a Presbyterian? And the unfortunate thing, obviously, as we know, and we'll get to this in later studies, uh, the unfortunate thing is that when you say the name Presbyterianism you, or Presbyterian, you almost have to apologize. <laughs> We're not the main line. We don't have uh, women or homosexual clergy uh, because that's, that's more of what it's known for uh, today, the name. Uh, and we're going to look at uh, historical considerations that led Presbyterianism from being one of the stalwarts of Protestantism to becoming what it is today, uh, namely either liberal mainline or conservative denominations that really have lost their identity. And I would think of a lot of uh, conservative Presbyterian churches today. They have the name Presbyterian on the front. But if you, have, if you have any real sense of Presbyterianism, and hopefully you will after this study, you would think that's Presbyterianism in name only. So... The purpose of the study, this is what we'll begin with, the purpose is to consider what does it mean to be a Presbyterian. Uh, I don't think there is a general consciousness today 
uh, of what that means. I don't think people have any idea. Every time I say it, I'm an Orthodox Presbyterian minister, I have to define it. What does Presbyterian mean? And, and what, what branch of Presbyterian? Well, we're one of the smaller, more conservative denominations is typically what I say. But people don't know what it means to be Presbyterian. It's a word, or to be Presbyterian. Whereas if you think of, you know, Baptist or Anglican, uh, or Roman Catholic, I think maybe that conveys something a little more meaningful to most people. Uh, but, but my big push is that we as Presbyterians would have a sense ourselves of what it means. So, I want to explore the key, key components historically and biblically of what it means to be Presbyterian, as well as examining, and this will be a key part of the study, modern distortions, Presbyterians who have lost their identity. By the way, let me just pause here and, and ask you, this, is, this ought to be the easiest question in the world to answer, but maybe, maybe you can't do it. What is the word Presbyterian based upon? Does anyone know? Now, if... if I won't let you answer uh, if you're, if, or do you know? Okay, I figured. I mean, if you're, if you're a student of the Reformation, that one was too easy. Uh, but I hope, uh, I hope the elders know. Do you, do you know? <laughs> I would assume. Yes. Does anyone else know? Presbyteros. And what does presbyteros mean in the Greek? It means elder. So the answer I used to give based upon that, let me... Uh, I don't have a handkerchief. I need to just grab. Uh, cooler air is making my nose run. Um, the, the answer that I used to give, and I was trying to express a broad churchmanship, and I still believe in a broad churchmanship, uh, but, and by that I mean that Presbyterians aren't the only Christians. We, we believe there are Christians in every denomination. Uh, although there are some false denominations. Uh, but the answer that I used to give to the question, what is a Presbyterian church, uh, trying to be as, as ecumenical as I could be, was to say a Presbyterian church is just a church that has elders. And so, for instance, the Baptist church across the street, which is reformed in its leaning, has elders. And so I you know, would joke with Sherry, our our secretary who attends there, or Rod, the pastor, I say, you know, you really are a Presbyterian church. That's not true. Uh, that was a that that was a kind of a stupid thing to say. I've come to realize as I've studied the issue more historically, that is a very low view of what it means to be Presbyterian. Especially, the more I'm preparing for these, the more I'm realizing that this is a great follow-up on the study of the Reformation because the Reformation gave birth to Protestantism. But Presbyterianism, it comes out of a particular wing of the Protestant Reformation. And what wing is that? There are three main wings. Well, there's four, but one we don't take too seriously, and that's the Anabaptist. Is that you don't typically want to say, you know, we're heirs of the Anabaptist. Um, not because they were Baptists, but for other reasons. But the three main wings of the, of the Protestant Reformation were what? Can anyone name just? Lutheran? What's that? And what was Calvin's wing called? Don't say Presbyterian. Reformed. And then Anglican. Now, did I miss did I miss one? I mean, I feel like that pretty much covers it. And then you have the Anabaptists, but like I said, the, even the Reformers rejected them. So that that I think fairly summarizes it. Lutheran, Reformed, and Anglican. And Anglican didn't really fit in with either. 
so uh, more. What's oh they well they're post Reformation, but they're absolutely reformed. Uh, although many of them were in the Anglican Church, so um, yeah, uh, they reformed for sure, for sure. All right, but if you look at those three main wings, Presbyterianism is a branch of the Reformed branch. So it's more narrow even than other Reformed denominations. However, if you look at other Reformed denominations today, you will notice there's a great deal of similarity. And so, for instance, if you look today at the new Psalter hymnal, which we sang out of in the evening, it's a joint venture we sang in the evening last week, and I want to sing out of it more and more. It's a joint venture of the OPC and the URC. Do, does anyone know what the URC uh, stands for? I believe it's United Reformed Church. It, it's, it's just like the OPC, it's a, but it's a Dutch denomination. It's not the Presbyterians come from Scotland, and the, the Scots came to America. There's a great book uh, to begin the world anew, I believe it's called. Uh, about that that journey to America and then the history of Presbyterianism in America. Uh, To begin the world anew, is that what it's called? No, no, no. That's a book on the American Revolution. I'm confusing two books that I I own. Uh, Seeking a Better Country. That's what it's called. Seeking a Better Country. Uh, So Presbyterianism is is a branch of the Reformed uh, uh, heritage, but it might look very similar to the URC. If you went into a URC church, you'd say... This looks very similar. So, nevertheless, Presbyterianism is a distinct is a distinct branch. So, the purpose of the study in answering the question, what is a Presbyterian, is uh, to consider and explore the distinctive elements of Presbyterian communion and worship. Uh, so, you can't speak of being a Presbyterian in isolation. It's something that occurs in the midst of a, a body of believers. And we come together to express our shared convictions and beliefs. And those beliefs, I'm going to say this later today if I get to it, those beliefs are the very things that are embodied together in our worship, which is why our worship looks a different way and has a distinctive form and even uh, flavor. That might be a bad word, but there's, there's a taste to it. You say, now this is different than what I got in other churches. And what are the reasons for that? Are there good reasons for that? And also, by the way, are there things because of those reasons that we could be doing better? It's another thing worth considering. It was actually out of uh, this study that we, we ultimately considered and followed through with going through with weekly communion. We realized this is something that is, is crucial to our reformed identity. All right. Uh, And all of that we'll be exploring and considering together. So these distinctive elements, which we'll consider, and I will have a handout for that in uh, a few weeks. It's going to take us some time to get (laughs) some momentum. But uh, uh, those distinctive elements are not only key to what it means to be a Presbyterian, but they are also things which have largely been forgotten and forsaken. By Presbyterians. So uh, the, the, the whole thrust in exploring the answer to that question is recovering those things. Hence the name of the main textbook, uh, not textbook, but the main text uh, that I'm using as the basis of this study, 
We're covering Mother Kirk. And Kirk is just a name for the church in Scotland. But using the language of Mother Church, uh, that, it was Augustine, I think, who said, if, if God is our Father, then the church is our mother. Now, that in many ways uh, has an unsettling ring to it, to the modern evangelical Christian. <laughs> that sounds very Roman Catholic, and indeed it is. But do you realize that Calvin himself expressed the very same truths, that the church is the mother of believers? And it was he who said outside of the church uh, that there is no uh, possibility of salvation. Uh, and that very language made its way into the confession. And more and more, I've said this over and over again, that all the confession is is just an expression of Calvin's theology. Although it adds the word ordinarily. Ordinarily, there is no possibility of salvation outside of the church. So that if God is our father, then the church is our mother. Uh, and, and that's something a reformed person should have no trouble saying. But it's, it's the lower form of modern evangelicalism that has re- rejected so much of the historic forms of Presbyterianism that's uncomfortable with that. Again, we're going to explore the historical developments. Daryl does a great job of that. Daryl Hart, having written this book. And so, let me say that looking at the Reformed Church, the Presbyterian Church, uh, having distinct, a distinct form, a distinct flavor, which, quite frankly, is hard to find today, but if you come into an OPC church, it's like you're being transported in time. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's just hard to find today. Uh, you have contemporary worship almost everywhere. And that they're saying we're rejecting the historical uh, forms. But, but these things, it is our belief, are not historical accidents. We're not saying that, well, they worshipped according to the customs of their day, and we're worshipping according to the customs of our day. But that, that is to misunderstand what led Presbyterianism to look the way it did uh, for so long. It, these were not historical accidents, but they were the result of uh, careful biblical study and deeply held uh, convictions which sprang out of the Reformation and began to crystallize uh, in the formation of the Confessions. My key sources for this study, uh, so I like to share all of the books that I'm going to be using, and it's not limited to this. Uh, We're not going to make it very far in this first study. We're just kind of introducing the idea uh, but but when I teach, I like I I, uh, I like to open the books and just read read portions of that uh, to you. Uh, and I don't know whether that's helpful or not. I think it is. Hopefully, you agree. The main textbook is this book, Recovering Mother Kirk. I'm primarily going to be working out of that today. Uh, Terry Johnson's Leading Worship. The first few pages, the introduction, is one of the best defenses of reform worship that is in existence. He also wrote a book. On family worship, again, the introduction to that book is another great defense of Reformed worship and Reformed piety. Let me, I'll stop every time I use a word that's fallen out of favor. These used to be just common words in Christianity, but piety just means an expression of devotion, a way of life. And the Reformed people lived a certain way, just like the Methodists lived a certain way. Why were they called the Methodists? Can anyone tell me? They had a method. They had a method. And so they lived in a certain way. The Methodists lived a certain way. The Calvinists lived a certain way. 
and so on and so forth, that you don't see that too much anymore. There's one oddball thing about these Presbyterian churches today, and that is their Lord's Day observance, although even that is not all that consistent uh, today. But it used to be truly ingrained in their ethos and their consciousness. Uh, We're going to be uh, making a case for the Lord's Day, certainly, as a key component of Presbyterianism. Hughes Oliphant Old, who was the teacher of Terry Johnson at Erskine Seminary, is now deceased, a relative of mine after whom my third son is named, uh, and I, I speak of him often. Uh, his book, Reformed According to, uh, Worship Reformed According to Scripture, and we have an earlier version of this book in the library. It's a wonderful defense of Reformed worship, especially Presbyterian worship. Uh, and then two other books, uh, the, the, our directory of worship, um, or excuse me, our book of order, the third book in the book of church order, there's a form of government, book of discipline, but then there's a directory of worship. It is a wonderful expression of exactly what I am going to be describing. And if you ever get a hold of an original Westminster Confession, it, as an addendum, and as part of the same book, there was a directory of worship. So uh, that is not accidental. That is, that is absolutely, I, I think that expresses it perfectly, actually. One of the cases I'm going to be making is that the way Reformed theology comes into expression practically is in the realm of public worship. And you can never, ever, ever separate those two things. That is the greatest idea that has led, uh, or the greatest uh, deviation from the original thought that you can hold on. Church is saying, we're reformed. And you go in and it's a rock concert. They're not reformed just because they believe in predestination. Uh, that is an adulteration. Reformed theology may only ever come to expression in reformed worship. If you don't believe that, that's fine. I won't question your credibility as a Christian but you certainly may not lay claim to the Reformed heritage. And I'll, 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 I'm, that's kind of one of the main points I'm going to be making today. And then surprisingly, perhaps to you, this book on preaching by Martin Lloyd-Jones, I asked the elders to read it at one point, the best books on preaching are a defense of the church. They end up being books that clarify the role and the nature of the church. And in clarifying that for the minister, it helps to clarify his task. But if you were to read it as a layman, it would really, really help you uh, to understand why the church looks like it does. All right, so those are my main uh, texts, although there's other books we may be looking at. Let me begin with this question that Daryl Hart asks uh, in the beginning of his book. So from here on, I'm, I'm following his preface and his introduction for the remainder of this lesson. Uh, what is it, if you think of yourself... Uh, most people, although we do have some people in this congregation who grew up in an Orthodox Presbyterian church, but most people did not grow up in the Orthodox Presbyterian church who are here. And that includes myself. And so if you ask yourself, this is the question that Daryl asks, what was it that drew me here? What was it that brought me to this place? Or, or more generally, what is it that attracts people to conservative Reformed Presbyterian churches? Now, the answer that Daryl gives, I think this is a good answer in terms of this isn't what he thinks the reason should be, but this is one of the commonest answers, and that is, uh, can anyone guess? 
I can get a little bit of stimulating thought here. <laughs> it's not just a bunch of fluffy drivel from the pulpit and sentimentalism. I came here and there were, the man actually fed me from the pulpit. Perhaps he fed me more than I could eat, but at least I left full. I remember Matt Avery once saying that. You know, if the pastor gives me too much, that's okay. I still left full, didn't I? I love that view of preaching. As long as he left me full, I can thank him. But if he left me hungry, then he did me a real disservice. I love that view of preaching. And so if ever the minister gives you a little too much, that's all right, as long as you left full. And uh, people are starving today in the church. And I think of my own experience as a Christian. I was appalled. I, from, from day one, the, day, the first day I was saved, I opened the Bible and I read it like my life depended on it. And then I went into the churches and it was like this light, trivial affair. And I couldn't understand it uh, when heaven and hell uh, lay in the balance. And, and even just my own sanctification. Uh, I, it, 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 it really baffled me. Uh, the, the, the low state of Christianity. Here were a bunch of people getting together and they just didn't take it seriously. Uh, it, it, was not, uh, it was not the substance of their, of their life and the soul of their life. So that was really evident to me. And I, and I was looking for people who were serious. Is there anyone who takes the Bible seriously? I, I went, a lot of people went through this phase into the charismatic church thinking I found the answer. Well, here are people who are incredibly earnest, but not about the Bible. They're earnest about Christian experience, but they transgress the Bible all the time. There were women preachers. There were uh, people, even women speaking in tongues, uh, leading the service. And I thought, you know, this is, Paul says, don't do this. And I got rebuked for that. They said, the brother, the spirit is moving. I said, "Uh, the spirit would never lie. And he's already told the truth in his words. So you are the liar. So I moved out of that movement pretty quickly. And I said, are there any serious Christians in the world who read the Bible and preach the Bible? And eventually I ended up in the Reformed Church. I'm just, I'm telling that story to say, I think this is a lot of people's story. Even the detour into the charismatic church, a lot of people have ended up there. And so there's something refreshing about the substance of it all. Uh, are there any other reasons that can, I mean, I already asked the question, so I don't know if I'm going to get any answers. Uh, but any other reasons that might occur to some? Okay, that's fine. I, um, what are some of the reasons people leave the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in general? Yeah, I, okay. Uh, that's not con- the direction I was looking for, but that's, that's, a, that's a good answer. Uh, a lack of joy. Uh, I would not say a lack of earnestness, but a lack of joy sometimes. Um, No, no. Um, now, the biggest reason people leave churches is because they get their feelings hurt. Let's just be honest. Uh, but if we're going to give people the most credit <laughs> and say, uh, you know, if, if it's part of this grand pursuit that at, at, in their Christianity, and, and eventually that led them here, but we're looking at that same person and saying, is there some particular frustration that caused them to move on? Okay, let me just give the answer, and I'm, I'm still... Borrowing from Daryl's line of thought. He's a professor, by the way, at Hillsdale College, but he also became a personal friend of mine at Westminster. He was still living in Philadelphia at that time, and he briefly taught at Westminster. So what, what, what Daryl says 
uh, is that. And, and this is something that we've seen even ministers doing in my time in the OPC is that they grow frustrated uh, by the lack of liturgy. So they, they actually say, what, what I want is Anglicanism, or I want Roman Catholicism, because Presbyterianism seemingly doesn't have the weight of tradition and history, and it does not have these solid forms to express its deeply held beliefs. And so you can understand someone on that trajectory ending up in the OPC would begin to long for something more along those same lines. What Daryl is saying is that Presbyterianism has all of those things, but it is ill-equipped, or at least ministers and elders and even laymen today are ill-equipped to actually defend them and then to express them. Presbyterians have lost their sense of the grand forms of worship and, and the deep and rich historical tradition that undergirds that. Uh, and so Anglicanism and Roman Catholicism as, as two high church alternatives just seem far grander in, in, in the sacred expressions of worship. But the question is, is Presbyterianism just another low church expression of Christianity? Uh, such as, for instance, uh, Southern Baptist churches or charismatic churches. Or is it something actually that resembles Anglicanism and Catholicism and Lutheranism in its, in its historical forms and in its deeply held beliefs? So, so, and I would say it is, and it ought to be, if, if, if Presbyterians are historically self-conscious in the same ways those other denominations are. And they're not. They're not today. And so it isn't all that surprising that some people grow frustrated and they go Anglican or they go, they go Roman Catholic. We have had several ministers in my time go Roman Catholic, just to be clear. Okay. We're Orthodox Presbyterian ministers. This is why. It's not that they're wavering on justification. That is a way too simplistic way of looking at the divide between the two. It's that they're frustrated with the ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the word I'm going to be using over and over. It just means the church. They're frustrated with the low view of the church and they're longing for something grander, something more sacred, uh, something that, quite frankly, that can inspire them to be a part of something. Uh, but that's just not something you find in Presbyterianism today. And so uh, Daryl says that it is a lack of liturgy. And that is lamentable. Liturgy means a form of worship. That is lamentable because Presbyterianism has its own distinct liturgical outlook or view of worship. We're not just going about this willy-nilly. We have, we have our own view, which is why it looks different than Lutheranism or Anglicanism or Roman Catholicism. However, as I keep saying, that liturgical outlook in, in distinction from these other high church expressions in Presbyterianism has mostly been lost. But the heart of the book, Recovering Mother Kirk, is to regain it. To say that if you want to look uh, from the Reformation onward, because there was no Presbyterian church before that, that we have every bit uh, as much a place uh, in, in, in historic Christianity as these other expressions. Let me read... Uh, 
Let's see. I now I've now this is the danger of, of depending on the quotes. I thought I had it and now I've lost it. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to have to move on. It will come up at some point in either today or next week's study because uh, basically he was emphasizing the point that I was emphasizing. Hmm. I just wish I could find it. Anyways, uh, let's let's go on. So that's the preface. Now to the introduction, and we have about 50 minutes tops. What is, if we were to speak of the Reformed outlook, okay, that's from Calvin onward, as it's worked its way through history and found its way to us today. I doubt anyone's going to get this, but I sure would be impressed if they did. Uh, what, what do you think uh, summarizes that outlook best? That's a good answer. That's a great answer. Uh, the centrality of Scripture is something we're going to be arguing throughout. Uh, I, I still, to this day, don't know anyone more serious about the Bible than Reformed Christians. It informs everything they do. Uh, go ahead, Matt. You're getting closer. That's a good answer. So the glory of God is the answer. That's the answer Daryl gives anyways. Central to the Reformed outlook is the glory of God. It's something we talk about a lot. something the Bible talks about a lot, not surprisingly. It is not something you find being discussed very often in other denominations, at least insofar as I can tell. So the heart of the Reformed outlook is glorifying God. And where is that thought uh, codified? Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer number one. What is the chief end of man? Or to use the language of the larger catechism, what is the chief and highest end of man? The answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, Daryl, just as an aside, makes an interesting point that um, Reformed Christians are probably more fixated on the first half and not the second. That is glorifying and not uh, enjoying God. But for better or worse, we have fixated our outlook upon the, on the first part of that, the glory of God, as our chief pursuit and aim. And the question uh, that he poses, and it's a historical one, uh, and we can just look at the 20th century, but uh, for one of these, maybe uh, go... Actually, two of the three, so never mind, excuse that. Only one of these, we will look at the 20th century. But uh, the ways that the Reformed Church has come to express its concern for the glory of God. And there are three main ways, uh, historically, and then one that Daryl adds that has been entirely forgotten. And the first is an emphasis on doctrine. As, for instance, you find in uh, the debates over confessional subscription in the 19th century. Uh, Are we going to be strict subscriptionists, or are we going to be Uh, subscribing to the system of doctrine. So are we going to closely follow the confession and require ministers to adhere to that and elders? Or are we going to loosely follow the confession? The great champion of this view that doctrine is the best way to glorify God was, can anyone guess, a great figure in the 20th century. I really hope someone can get this. I think you just said it. Yes, Machen, Machen. Let me read another quote from Daryl. 
He says, in the words of J. Gresham Machen, who embodied the doctrinalist mindset, perhaps better than anyone else, this is a quote now, the Christian religion is based upon a body of truth, a body of doctrine, which will remain true beyond the end of time, end quote. He goes on, Daryl goes on, for that reason, Machen had no tolerance for efforts to locate the essence of Christianity in experience or good works. In his estimate, and for other doctrinal Calvinists like him, theology best preserves the glory of God and man's enjoyment of him because it places the work of salvation solely on what God does, not on the feeble and fallen efforts of man, of men and women. I think the best quote there is, theology best preserves the glory of God. That is uh, one way that Reformed uh, churches have sought to express the glory of God and to pursue it. It is through doctrinal precision. Certainly this is something that the OPC is still known for today. Uh, there, there was an expression that still exists, the Machen's warrior children. <laughs> and that is uh, a way of denigrating the OPC. Uh, that was, I, I believe, coined by a man who left the OPC. I want to say it was Jack Miller. I could be wrong about that, but I'm 95% sure I'm not. But to say, these men are just too rigid in their doctrine. And it's stifling the work of the ministry and of the church. Uh, but, but we are very rigid, uh, for better or worse. So I would say that point uh, continues to capture the ethos of the OPC. When we examine a man for ministry, it is a theological exam. I've been told in other Reformed denominations it is primarily a personal exam about the man's personal life. Uh, so you can decide which you think is better, uh, but uh, doctrine continues to be uh, number one in the OPC. The second way brings us into another uh, heritage of Reformed thought, and that is uh, what he calls the worldview approach. And I don't know a lot about this. I remember this being discussed a lot in seminary. It just isn't something I've studied a whole lot. Although, if you're familiar with the work of Tim Keller at all, uh, he would be a, a modern Presbyterian who holds to that view. And it leads to a much broader view of the church's ministry, uh, not so much... Uh, limited to the preaching and the sacraments and Christian fellowship, but really, really pushing to extend the church's influence in the world. Uh, this is uh, the Dutch view, again, articulated by Abraham Kuyper. He wrote a book, or he gave a lecture, a series of lectures that became a book, Lectures on Calvinism. I own it. I haven't read it. I don't have a lot more to say about that. But the, if, if you were, again, to go, let's say, to a Reformed seminary, or if you were more conscious of the broader Reformed world today, uh, this is something you would no doubt encounter outside of the OPC. The third wing, can anyone guess it? Would be more of the Puritan expression of a Christian experience, or what is called experimental Calvinism. Um, there's some confusion over this, why it isn't experiential Calvinism. I don't know the answer to that, but when we say experimental, we mean experience, Christian experience. This is something that was expressed in the Puritans and Jonathan Edwards. Again, the emphasis on Christian experience. The emphasis, now Daryl doesn't like this. Let me just, this is the first time I'm going to say that I have a lot of disagreements with Daryl. Uh, he's, he's a very clean, systematic thinker. And sometimes I think his lines of distinction are too sharp. Uh, but uh, he, he, so he, more, he basically rejects this. It, it drove him insane. He was an elder at the church. Uh, in Glenside, which is right across the street from Westminster Seminary, drove him crazy 
that we always use the Puritan paperbacks for our men's breakfast. For this very reason, it was, in his mind, not just an emphasis on Christian experience, but, and you can understand a rejection of this coming out of a broad evangelical background, but especially upon emotion, the ardor of the emotion, uh, the affections, the Christian affections. Uh, so that, that is a major emphasis of the Puritans, uh, the whole banner of truth, uh, wing of Christianity. If you read any of their books, they all come out of that realm, experimental Calvinism. This is what Daryl says uh, if you... Oh, well, let me just say one more thing about experimental Calvinism. There, there is certainly a downside to it, even though I would view myself as an experimental Calvinist. But there, there is a danger of, of valuing a man's profession or judging a man's profession to faith by the depth of emotion with which he gives it. <laughs> and if there isn't enough emotion, then perhaps he isn't sincere. So that's the, that's the danger. And I remember even um, Martin Lloyd-Jones being critical of John Owen for having uh, too high a view of the love of God uh, as though if a man was not burning with love to God, then he clearly was not a Christian at all. So more or less equating love and faith. So, um, let, uh, so there are legitimate criticisms of all of these, uh, which even I have. Uh, but uh, what, what Daryl says in summarizing this as the three main expressions, the Reformed tradition, he says, if these tendencies are accurate, is known chiefly for its doctrinal precision, cultural outlook, and religi- or religious zeal. Now, I would make an adjustment, and I just almost did it myself uh, when I was reading it, his quote. He says, or. I would have said, and, that the Reformed tradition is chiefly known for its doctrinal precision, its cultural outlook, and its religious seal. So I don't see these things necessarily as, as ex- mutually exclusive, but as very often you have Christians, uh, such as, for instance, uh, R.L. Dabney, who was extremely uh, doctrinally precise, and yet who would be very much in the side of experimental Calvinism. And, and that's where I would hope to land as well. So numbers one and three are my, my, my beliefs as well. Okay, so I'm not taking any issue with those. I'm saying they, these are good things. Not sure about the worldview approach. Typically, the exponents of that today are doing things that I do not like. Uh, but Daryl is saying that, really, if, if those were the main three, it misses the most important category of all. And, and, and because we've missed this, we are losing people to other, other traditions higher up in the spectrum of high and low church. I'm going to go extensively into that. What does low church mean? What does high church mean? What does the spectrum look like? I'm going to make the case that Presbyterianism lands right in the middle. Daryl is going to make the case that it really is, it's up there with Anglicanism uh, and Lutheranism. It, it, it's, it's standing side by side with them. I'm, I'm not prepared to go that far. But... The reason people are leaving is because of the loss of this liturgical outlook. And so Daryl makes the case for a fourth category, which he thinks is chief among them. And the other three is being subordinate. And that is the Reformed liturgist. The Reformed liturgist. Now, I am also a Reformed liturgist. Very much so. And the more I explain what that means, I think I'm going to be sharing uh, with Daryl and making the case for this. He would also say... 
if, if Machen was a doctrinalist uh, and, and, and Edwards was an experimental Calvinist, he's saying that the liturgists, the, the real Reformed liturgists were the Reformers. It was John Calvin uh, that his primary concern was upon worship and the local church as standing at the heart of the Christian life and outlook. In other words, we're running out of time, and so I'm, I'm going to have to pick up here next time and continue to expand upon this. But at the heart of the Christian life, the primary way, this is something I was saying earlier, the primary way, the primary means that my Christian convictions come into expression, the primary way that I express my religious devotion to God is in Christian worship. Whereas, if we're to make a distinction that doesn't have to be made, but can be made, and often is made, uh, between the liturgist and the experimental Calvinist, which are sometimes called the pietist, so if you made a distinction between the liturgist and the pietist, the pietist might say, I can worship God anywhere. That's the broadly evangelical view today. I don't have to go to church. I, I want to. It's a good thing, but it's not by no means necessary. I can just as well worship God at home, if you think of recent developments. I can just as well worship God under uh, a tree and with a walk in the field. Now, you can do that, of course, but the liturgist would say, if you, if you miss out on Christian worship, you have not just missed out on something crucial, but something necessary that obliterates all of your claim to devotion in those other areas. It is impossible for a Reformed liturgist to express his devotion without Christian worship. Again, not to negate those other things. Whereas you see the pietist is saying, well, you know, again, I can worship God uh, just as well anywhere else. So there's the divide, and we're going to explore that divide more and more. I'm, I, I'm, I guess I'll stop there, and that's the point we'll pick up with and really begin to explore again the, the liturgist and the pietist. And, 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 uh, and Daryl's point is that coming out of the Reformation, John Calvin was a liturgist. And the church, if God is our father, then the church is our mother. And that uh, our, our reform beliefs are expressed most and best in the context of Christian worship. And we could never dream of, of, of living without those things. Yes? In, in, its, in its most extreme form, yes. If, if we're saying pietism in the case of Jonathan Edwards, certainly not. And Jonathan Edwards, I mean, was uh, <laughs> the revival occurred in the midst of his preaching at the local church on the Lord's Day. Uh, so, you know, there could be a case that was made uh, about George, George uh, Whitfield, which Daryl makes. I don't necessarily agree, but George Whitfield took to the fields and left the church. And there's debates about that. So, you know, these things are always spectrums. But... Um, I don't think that George Whitfield falls outside the pale of Reformed ecclesiology, just to be clear. But many people do. Daryl does. Um, but, I, but pietism in its most extreme form severely undervalues the church as something that is unnecessary. Something that's beneficial, but something that is not necessary. Uh, again, in its most extreme form. So um, pietism in, in its most extreme form is not Reformed. Are the Reformed pietists? Absolutely. And in fact, I would, 
I would not have any trouble defining myself as one. Uh, um, not again, not in the more extreme form, but in the form of emphasizing Christian experience. Absolutely. But as a liturgist, I would also say those experiences are meant to be focused and sought most at, at the means of grace, at the Lord's table, under the preaching, and so on. So, uh, and you know, I'll get into ways in the modern setting that the modern church is being rejected in subtle forms. Um, but we'll have to explore that more and more. Did I answer your question? Okay. The question was, for the benefit of those listening, is, uh, is am I saying that pietism is not reformed? There are some who would say, yes, period. I'm saying only in its most extreme form, with the form which views the church as optional, not as necessary. Uh, so, all right, we're going to stop there. We'll, we'll hit the ground running with that thought next time. And uh, unlike Glenn, I, I don't have a lesson that I'm, I'm finishing and 13 that I've got prepared and they're each going to be finished. I, this is more open-ended and that's just how I like to teach, very different than my preaching. So uh, my teaching is very open-ended and you know I did not finish at all what I prepared today, but we'll just keep, we'll just keep working through these ideas together and more or less 13 weeks. All right, let's stop there. Feel free to ask me questions afterwards. This is, I hope, going to be a thought-provoking study, but I do think in the course of time, uh, most of those questions will be answered if you want to just hold on to them. Let's pray together. Father, we look forward now to the hour of worship. We praise you for this rich and this grand uh, historical tradition, one which we believe, well, as Calvin expressed and as uh, R.C. Sproul expressed, the, the number of men is innumerable, that Reformed Christianity is just for us, at least, synonymous with biblical Christianity. And, and this is something which we value, Lord, and we ask you that you would begin through this study to, to help these convictions to be formed more and more in our own hearts so that they would come to expression in, in the very thing we're about to do, and that is in the hour of worship. And so go with us now into that place and bless us, we humbly pray in Jesus' name. Amen.